0: This week's episode is brought to you by KPMG. Stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear KPMG's senior partner, Dean Grandy, explain why he thinks Australian governments are failing to achieve their long-term digital delivery aspirations.
1: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the IT News Podcast. Our guest this week is Stephen Smith, the Chief Information Officer for the Reserve Bank of Australia. Now, he's leading several interesting programs of work. One is making infrastructure service delivery simpler, more standardized, and more automated. And this involves a mix of BAU and transformational upgrades being delivered in parallel. Another area of focus is a refresh of the RBA's training and development framework to improve the career paths for skilled technology professionals. It makes for a pretty wide-ranging conversation, which we hope you'll enjoy. You've been CIO now for 10 months, coming up to a year. Can you give us a sense of how you've approached the role, given that you were the deputy for IT before becoming the CIO?
2: It's been interesting. It's been an element of continuity and then broadening out the scope of what I'm looking at in my role. As deputy, I was looking after infrastructure and operations and had spent the best part of the year, as well as responding to COVID, working through putting together A comprehensive strategy for infrastructure and operations. That infrastructure and operations strategy had to support the other areas of the bank and of IT. So it really was extending out our understanding of the strategy and what needed to happen in infrastructure and operations to those other areas of the bank. I found actually during the last 10 months in my role, there has actually been a lot of responding to the environment so during that period of time, we've bounced in and out of COVID lockdowns. But also we've faced into those issues that I think a lot of our peers and colleagues across the industry are faced into, which is just finding and retaining good quality people and managing the impacts of higher than historic levels of departure across the team. So it's been a time where we've hired a lot of great new people. But we've also seen a lot of people leave. There's been a fair bit of change. So really, in approaching the role, it was continuity and it was responding to some of the issues and incidents that have just blown up for everyone in the industry over the last 10 months.
1: So when you approach it from a continuity standpoint, what were the things that were already in train and how has that progression continued? What
2: was in Train, apart from the usual operational support of critical bank systems and building out of new capabilities in our business unit focused IT teams, was really looking at how we simplify, standardise and automate our infrastructure services, how we move to broader adoption of cloud and associated automation. And, of course, how we continue to build on the reliability and security of our core systems. They're continual themes. The bank sits at the centre of the Australian economy. We support key systems in payment settlement, in government banking, in note issue and in financial markets. And it's really important for us to make sure that those systems are absolutely reliable and secure. So that's a really strong element of the continuity that I'm talking about.
1: So there's three aspects there you mentioned around infrastructure, which were simplification, standardization, and automation. If you were to look across the breadth of infrastructure and operations at the moment, where would you be in terms of those three elements? Would you be mostly now through the sort of simplification and standardization stuff, and so it's more focused on automation, or is there still work across all three of those sort of elements?
2: They're all running in parallel. So where we're up to is... From an automation point of view, we're really focused on patch automation and on making sure that we comply with the updated Essential 8 security guidelines so that we're in a position where we're able to do our routine patching in a couple of weeks and to do our emergency patching, which we do regularly in 48 hours, but to make sure that we can bring that time window in and to do it in a way that minimizes risks on systems. We're also in process with rolling out automation tools, I won't go into all the names, but we're rolling out automation tools and really looking at the low hanging fruit. One of those regular infrastructure maintenance tasks that we can easily automate and reduce workload effort for some of our key infrastructure teams. In parallel to that, the simplification and standardization is happening across our networks, So, like many organisations that have invested through projects over many years, we have quite a complex network environment and we're seeing that there's an opportunity to adopt contemporary approaches to network and security management that will really allow us to reduce the number of networks that we're maintaining and the complexity that we have to manage within. We've got a very highly motivated, highly engaged set of staff. Still, we find that staff find it very difficult to avoid making errors at times because of the complexity of the environments that we give them to work in. So, on simplification, we've started with our campus network design, we've made some good progress, we've designed the new network architecture. We rolled it out December, January, and in an environment where we previously would have built six separate networks for different functions. We now have that working on a single network, and we've updated our approach to security so that we're able to segment all the traffic that would previously have been physically segmented. So that's a really important breakthrough for us. We are starting work now on moving on to our wide area network design, and that will encompass all our offshore offices as well. And then we're moving on to our core network design, which is probably the most complex And also the one where we're probably going to get the most benefit in terms of security and stability.
1: So there's a huge amount of effort going there in terms of the network side of things. You talked briefly about segmentation and you also talked about WAN as well as a second piece of work. So are you moving more towards the software-defined WAN and software-defined networking in general?
2: Correct. That is right. We see that there are great opportunities not only to reduce the complexity of our networks or... It changes the nature of that complexity, but it gives us, we have less investment in infrastructure, we have less investment in licensing, we have fewer things to patch, but also it opens up some significant improvements in observability and in security management. So from that point of view, very important. Being software-defined, also it supports our drive towards adoption of DevOps. So it's important from that point of view. I didn't mention infrastructure, but in the general compute and store space as well, we're also adopting software-defined approaches more broadly. We've been using some software-defined elements now, but we're moving more and more into adopting standard infrastructure patterns that are already automated and then laying out on top of that uh, standardized monitoring tool set, again, to give us those economies of scope and improve observability and automation.
1: And so when you talk about it on an infrastructure side, you're talking about it more as infrastructure as code and the automation of the actual provisioning of compute and storage capacity, for example.
2: Correct, yeah.
1: Maybe it'd be useful just to take one step back and just to talk a little bit about the breadth of the technology operations at RBA. And it'd be useful to know from this. So, So when we're talking about the network side, for example, what the reach of that network is, so the campus network and the wide area network, which you've mentioned there. And also, I guess the core network and where the interconnection points for that are. And then secondly, it'd be useful to understand a bit about these core infrastructure systems or core enterprise applications that are sitting on top of that infrastructure as well.
2: Yeah, sure. So look, we're unusual in that a very large proportion of our workforce is actually working out of our head office building. So we're in an iconic modernist office block from the late 50s, early 60s at the top of Martin Place. I think probably 80% of our staff work out of that building. But we have offices in Melbourne and Canberra. We have a note printing subsidiary in uh, Craigieburn in Melbourne. And we have offshore offices undertaking trading work in London and in New York and representative offices in Beijing as well. So we have a small number of staff who are located offshore, but they have significant operational responsibilities as well in terms of it and what it's like and how it's organized it's interesting one of our former deputy governors used to joke that the reserve bank was actually an it shop with some policy functions tacked on the side in a sense he was making a joke about it but he was underlining the importance of it i think to the overall operation of the bank and to supporting the critical functions that we perform we've got about 550 people in it They're organized broadly with about 350 facing into those core business functions, things like banking, payment settlement, financial markets, note issue, and uh, general data management and corporate systems. We also have a pretty sizable group working in our security team and working across strategy, architecture, governance, portfolio delivery. In addition, we've got about 200 who are working in the infrastructure and operations team supporting those other parts of IT and other parts of the bank. We're a unique beast in the Australian economy. There aren't that many central banks around the world. So what tends to happen is that we tend to have a number of bespoke and quite heavily customised systems that we use for our core charter functions for financial markets, for payment settlements, for banking and for note issue particularly. For the other areas of the bank, we tend to use off-the-shelf systems, and we try to avoid customising those as much as possible. So they're going to be things like PeopleSoft, MuleSoft, TM1, Microsoft 365, and we're in the process of adopting ServiceNow, Workday, Savient. So you see there's a mixture of specialised systems and more generic systems. I was going to say also that in terms of the number of staff that we have considering the importance of the work that we're doing, we're actually quite lean. When you think of the Reserve Bank and the fact that it runs the payment settlement system for the nation, that it runs the domestic market operations and liquidity operations for the banks, that it looks after note printing and note issue the it shop is actually quite lean and quite focused so it's a team that really relies on some deep expertise and some really highly motivated engaged people to keep all those systems running effectively
1: so there's an enormous amount of technology upgrades occurring so across sort of infrastructure across the application environment embrace of cloud embrace of software defined networking embrace of infrastructure as code i wondered Is there something drawing this all together strategically in terms of a transformation effort or a program of works underway that brings all of these different elements together? Or is this part of the business as usual upgrade cycle that would be expected at an organisation like RBA? It's probably a little bit of
2: both. I think in talking about infrastructure simplification and automation, that really is transformational. And the driver underpinning that is stability and security. So again and again, I keep coming back to if we're playing this critical role at the centre of the economy, we have to be available and we have to be operating properly. So a lot of what we're doing is really focused on how do we minimise the risk of an incident? How do we minimise the time to recover? And how do we ensure the ongoing security of our system? So that's a really strong driver of investment. I think the other strong driver of investment at the moment is this realization, and we're not at all unique in this realization, that the ways people work are changing. And that's informing a lot of the investment and design decisions that are going into the refurbishment of our 65 Martin Place office, a big project underway to refurbish the building, but also to adapt it to new ways of working and to ensure that we're giving our people the right tools and information to operate really effectively as a central bank. That's an important component. I think the adoption of cloud, a big driver there, also is getting access to cloud-native resilience and redundancy that adds to stability and security, but also it's this drive for value for money and effectiveness. So we want to adopt platforms and cloud solutions where they allow us to deliver much better functionality, faster cheaper and with lower risk. And so that's driving a lot of the investment in things like ServiceNow, Workday, Microsoft 365
1: and the like. Let's touch on the skills side of things. I know you've touched on that previously in the conversation, but it'd be useful to understand a little bit more about how you're doing all of this with the size of the team you have, but also how you're reskilling or upskilling some of the existing personnel to deal more with things in code. And deal more with things in a more software-defined manner?
2: It's a challenging area. I think everybody in the industry has probably seen the premium that is attracted by code-savvy infrastructure experts We've come to the conclusion that we need to build those skills in-house. And so what we're doing at the moment is we're putting a lot of focus into this, but working with an external partner to refresh our training and development framework. And that framework gives our staff the ability to plan out their career, undertake a diagnostic of the knowledge areas that they need to build skills and experience in, And also for them to flag to us those areas where they would like to have secondments and rotations to really embed and cement some of those skills. So we've identified that there's around about 23 job families and each of those job families has about four or five jobs in it. And each of those jobs has three to four career stages. And we're going through the process of identifying for each one of those job families and jobs, what's the training and accreditation that our people will need at each career stage, and we're curating it and making it available. But also we're approaching it using a 70-20-10 model with a realisation that to acquire capabilities and skills, about 10% of it is formal learning, 20% is supervised on the job experience, and 70% is less closely supervised embedding experience. So we're looking not only for the formal training, but to give our people the opportunities to apply that training and practice in a way that allows them to safely embed those skills.
1: Mm. And how are you finding time to give to people to do this upskilling? Because obviously with a smaller team size compared to the span of the infrastructure, there's going to be a lot of business as usual work on top of the transformation efforts that are underway as well. So sort of skills has to fit in there somewhere.
2: Yeah, and that is a real focus for us at the moment. I don't think we've cracked it fully. Some of the ways that we're doing it is by changing the way that we organise and manage our work. We've found that in certain BAU teams, by adopting agile approaches, we're able to get through much more work, much more effectively, and that's been part of the strategy. Part of the strategy is being 10%, the training doesn't take up too much time. So it's really the key here is to give people an opportunity to rotate into a role where they can solidify, cement the training into practical skills. So that's really through an active process of trying to find rotations for people in areas where they want to acquire skills. The other thing is just to purposely carve out time from people's calendars to allow them to undertake that training and to embed those skills. It's a work in progress. I don't think we've cracked it yet and we're going to keep working on it. But you're right, it's a real issue to find time in busy schedules for people to take on training. Having said that, our people are finding the time. We've put around about 250 people through agile training and through JIRA training in the first few months of this year, so people are finding the time and we're agile to manage around it. But you're right, it's an ongoing focus. It's a tension that has to be managed.
1: Just flipping back to more of the technology and the architecture side of things, one of the things I'm interested in is that you mentioned before that, for example, you're moving from customized applications to more off-the-shelf cloud-based solutions. You also mentioned that you're doing a lot more work around moving to a more software-defined infrastructure I guess the other side of that is that when we think about central banks or banks in general, a lot of these organizations have infrastructure or a lot of customized applications that have no cloud-based equivalent or have no easy path to software to find. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that part of your environment or infrastructure that maybe the transition path looks more challenging at this point.
2: So, you're right, I think a couple of points I'd make there. One of them is that, yes, not all of our customised applications are going to easily make a transition into containers or the cloud. The way that we're approaching that is as we go through each major upgrade, so if we look at something like our Fast Settlement Services, they go through a major rewrite or refresh around about every five or six years. So at those junctures, we'll take the opportunity to review. Is now the right time for us to look at refactoring and migrating those applications? In some cases, I'm sure we're going to find that it doesn't make sense that the application architecture just won't support that. However, in other areas, so we're in the process of migrating our core banking system into containers at the moment. That's a system that is proving to be very amenable to containerization. And that opens up opportunities for us to look at either migrating it into a public cloud, a public secure cloud, or into a hybrid cloud, both using on and off premise cloud infrastructure. So, I guess I'd break it into a few different categories. As we have an opportunity to review an application, we'll evaluate refactoring it. We see some applications are easy to refactor and to containerize, and some we are not looking to refactor or re containerize but we'll either look to migrate off it onto an off-the-shelf platform where we can. So, we had a reasonably highly configured service management solution We're in the process of migrating off that onto ServiceNow, for example. So we're looking for IaaS, SaaS and PaaS solutions to really take over the capability that in the past we've tended to somewhat more customise
1: understand. So there's not necessarily a burning platform in this sense in all of those areas. Uh, It's more that on a cyclical review basis, you'll have an opportunity to revisit these things down the track. And if it seems like there's an easier transition path or a more acceptable transition path or even an appetite to conduct more serious work on some of those areas, then you can revisit that at a later point in time.
2: Well, that's right. And again, the driver for all of this, the key driver is, can we manage this application with lower risk? So it's really around security and stability or do it more effectively. So can we manage the application with fewer resources to a lesser extent? But also important is, can we support better scalability and can we support more flexibility? So the ability to roll out new functionality more quickly. We've had a good example with BK NextGen with a banking platform migration. So we had an experience during the COVID pandemic where we had to basically lift the daily transaction throughput on that application by about 700% as we went through processing the COVID payments. And that gave us a lot of learnings about limitations and opportunities that we could exploit in moving to the cloud to rapidly scale an application like that. It also means that during the quieter times, we're not having to maintain such a big infrastructure fleet to support that kind of application. We also used the bank has an innovation lab, and we use the innovation lab to actually pilot and trial containerization of aspects of that application. So that gave us a lot of insight too, that helped us understand the costs, risks and benefits of that kind of transition.
1: One of the things that was recently reported was that you'd started consuming Azure services in the Australian government region. I know you've sort of touched on cloud adoption in this conversation, but it'd be useful to understand a little bit about the Reserve Bank's cloud strategy and particularly your approach and how you're deciding where to host different workloads.
2: So we're cloud agnostic, I think is the best way to put it. So we have actually workload running in AWS as well as in Azure. The factors that drive our decision is really the security and availability of the facility that we're examining. So like I guess most major financial organizations, we've got a pretty rigorous process for evaluating cloud controls and cloud security. And any cloud that we use would need to be able to comply with those controls. They're controls that get applied, obviously, before we shift a workload into a cloud and regularly throughout the life of that service. So, in looking at where we're going with cloud adoption and what our cloud strategy is, I'd say, as kind of outlined earlier, we would look to adopt cloud services where we can improve availability and security, where we can improve cost-effectiveness, and where it can give us advantages around scalability. That means that we're quite happy to look at the government region in central. We'll also look from an Azure point of view at east and south where there is a demonstration that they've got a secure rating and we could run our workload safely there. So we take a very pragmatic and a very fact-based approach to how we select our clouds. In terms of SaaS services, it's really the same approach we're looking at security, availability, functionality, and also to an extent, although less so with SaaS services, how we avoid lock-in. How do we ensure that we've got flexibility and we retain some commercial optionality as we adopt cloud?
1: The innovation lab that you just mentioned previously. Does that sit under the remit of technology or is that kind of a side or separate function? And what kind of things would it typically work on? So, for example, would this take the role of, say, like the chief technology office does in some organizations, which is really focusing on just the emerging stuff and the experimentation with the hope of producing sort of a proof of concept that can be taken back and scaled within other parts of the organization? Or does it have a different function?
2: it has a different function. So although it has done work like that, so for example, I spoke earlier about the experiment that we ran around containerization and around defining the architecture that we could use for our banking system. It's really focused on lifting the innovation capabilities of the entire organization, lifting the skills and the understanding of how to use innovation techniques across a broad range of business problems so the kinds of things that we're engaged with through the innovation lab have included things like cryptocurrency but we've also looked at things like policy related issues around cash distribution and management we've looked at how best to set up business processes around data onboarding and management of data in economics areas so although it's part of it its remit is much more on building the innovation capabilities of the entire bank This year, we've launched through the Innovation Lab, what we're calling the Innovation Academy. And that's currently two modules, but that will rapidly grow out to a full set of training modules that really help people understand what innovation is, what different innovation techniques can be applied to different problem spaces. It gives people opportunities to understand how they can apply those innovation techniques in their daily work. We also have something which is called the huddle, which actually brings together innovation champions from all our departments. And that meets regularly to identify and prioritize experiments that we can run in the lab. They could be IT related experiments. They could be experiments related to policy or research. They could be drawn from anywhere across the organization.
1: Just one final question is one that I've asked everyone as a guest on the show is what excites you about the next 12
0: months?
2: What I'm excited about, honestly, is getting this trading and development framework up and running really effectively. I think the ability to make sure that our people who are already really highly engaged with the purpose of the bank also have an opportunity to develop the skills and capabilities that we need and they need in the future. I'm excited about work we're doing around our overall employee value proposition and I'm also really excited about the work that we're doing in the 65 Martin Place project and in developing new ways of working and rolling out the collaboration tools because I think that's going to have a big impact on a lot of people's lives within the bank.
0: Hi, I'm IT News commercial editor, William Maher. KPMG's public sector business in Australia is involved in large-scale, complex federal government programs of national significance. Recently, I spoke to its lead partner for technology, Dean Grandy, to get a better read on problems with the way Australian government bodies approach digital delivery. Dean, Australian government departments have achieved a lot with digital technology in the last couple of years, but you say they're failing to achieve their long-term technology aspirations.
3: Yeah, that's correct Will and there's no doubt that a real strength of government is responding to a crisis and as has been widely reported, advancements in digital delivery have very much been accelerated during the pandemic and mostly out of necessity and we've seen high levels of take-up and use and a greater requirement for citizens to trust digital government solutions. However, often this leads to tech debt and indeed tech regret. I think The COVID-19 check-in apps are an interesting example. When when state borders were closed and we were emerging out of lockdowns, we were completely reliant on the check-in apps and the use of them as an essential daily tool to to enable us to function. Um, Interestingly though, once border restrictions were eased, it it immediately became apparent that for me, I live in Canberra, I went to Sydney, um, just across the border into New South Wales, they had a different app with different requirements. And when Queensland finally opened again, their check-in app when I got up there was different and the requirements to, to um, access services were different yet again. So this, this sort of lack of consistency and cohesiveness around the design only became apparent when we were able to be mobile again. W- one of the key themes will emerging from recent discussions I had in the US with a number of leading technology and digital vendors Was around designing and delivering very rich end-to-end digital experiences. Returning to Australia I was required to download and use the digital passenger declaration application as developed by Home Affairs and that user experience was particularly poor. There were multiple functionality and usability issues and it didn't link to other existing government digital assets such as the international vaccination certificate which I just mentioned which was a really useful asset So it wasn't surprising to learn this week that the digital passenger declaration has been shelved by the government, despite significant investment, I'm sure a huge effort and a commitment by many to progress this initiative. But its failure, however, is is another setback to Australia's stated aspiration of being a sustainably leading global digital nation and government by 2025.
0: What are some of the underlying problems you see?
3: Part of the problem is still siloed thinking, siloed design and siloed delivery. Can I give an example of WIPIT, the Welfare Payments Infrastructure Transformation Program at Services Australia, has just recently concluded that was a seven-year transformation program. I was there, Will, on day one, alongside many other strategic advisors and really smart people from within the Commonwealth government space. And there is no doubt that Whippet has delivered benefits and and many lessons have been learned. However, as you can imagine over seven years, technology and expectation had shifted considerably. And Whippet only addresses issues of welfare, of welfare payments. Wouldn't it be great if Whippet could be leveraged to address issues more broadly across that agency in relation to health and Medicare payments or child support or even broader government challenges, but it was never designed to be optimized, to be reused, to cover other issues, challenges, opportunities in terms of government delivery. And in the absence of this sort of North Star vision that drives focus and directional intensity, we'll continue to see investment in silos, duplication um, and a reduction of the opportunity to really embrace the, the digital government promise.
0: So what steps can government IT leaders take to address this?
3: The piece that's missing and the glue that connects reform to transformation is modernisation. And there are some key components in this modernisation space, some of which we've already touched on, around reducing the reliance on, on legacy systems and, and really embracing the cloud as an opportunity to generate greater efficiencies, about designing for a future and having this collaborative, trusted design principles that lead to a clearly defined North Star to guide direction. Embedding cyber and security considerations into every activity. Investing in people and capability. We we know there is a talent famine. How do we use the industry? How do we use the resources within government and upskill them and share capability and, and transfer knowledge and draw down on lessons learned to avoid continually making similar mistakes. Delivering on that digital government promise, 2025 is just around the corner. How are we going to sustain and improve and continue to drive digital government outcomes? And then addressing that data challenge about how to unlock it. And across those key components that there is a requirement for for all leaders, for all participants in, in government and that engage with government to really understand that broader ecosystem, how these things interconnect. And in order to do that, these concepts really need to be demystified and clarified and simplified.
0: If you could give one message to people in senior decision making roles in government agencies, what would it be?
3: continue to be curious there there are really interesting initiatives and activities and investments happening in you know the the agencies and departments that they operate in but also those that um, alongside them are in the adjacencies and at other levels of government whether it be state or local government or federal and that curiosity needs to lead to trust and, and transparency around how we come together to, to drive common outcomes and and solutions that can be repurposed and are designed and have an intent around interoperability and reuse across government so that we can build on rather than start again each time or duplicate effort.
0: That was Dean Grandy from KPMG talking about Australian government's digital modernisation challenge. To learn how KPMG works with government to future-proof technology investments, visit home.kpmg.au.